Welcome to this week's episode of Being Human. I'm delighted to say I'm here with Teresa Shepard-Alexander. She's an author and a therapist. Uh, and this is uh, the book that I've just read, uh, Facing the Wolf Inside the Process of Deep Feeling Therapy. Teresa, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm very happy to be here. Uh, it's a, a delight. And we have a lot in common. So we have uh, both discovered primal therapy uh, initially, and you've gone on to extend that and, and create something uh, you describe as deep feeling therapy, which I'm, I'm sure we'll get into. Um, but I wonder if for context here, we, we begin, and actually where, where your book begins, with what uh, led you up to initially discovering this thing called primal therapy? Well, I will say that um, I, from a very young age, I, when I was 10 years old, I discovered the word psychiatrist. And I thought, that's what I want to be, because it meant the study of the mind. And at that time, I you know, as I say in the book, I felt there was something wrong with my family. And so I wanted to study something that would help me understand what was wrong. By the time I discovered primal therapy, I was about, I was 20 years old. And I had discovered myself having difficulty doing that very thing. I'd gotten a scholarship to college. I went to college for two weeks and decided I just can't do this. I have to leave. And I left. And I fortuitously happened to be in the, a, a library in the week that the book, The Primal Scream, came out. And I started reading it and thought, okay, this is something that will help me be able to do what it is I really want to do. So, and to deal with the things that I felt were wrong in my family. So it was a, it was a fortuitous moment. I found it, I found the book and I read it straight through overnight and woke up the next morning and called the Primal Institute and said I wanted to come there. So Right. And, uh, yeah, I mean, for people reading that book, I mean, this is, it, it describes a, a pretty intense process, right? right? Where you're going to be doing a lot of crying and a lot of <laughs> potentially some screaming. And, you know, what on earth <laughs> had you think, okay, this is a good idea. This is something I want to do because I'm, I'm, Imagining the vast majority of people are not going to want to go there. What, why do you think you went? Well, you know what? I think the vast majority of people do not want to go there. And that's fine. If you don't have to go there, most people will not. But I felt that I had to go there because I was aware of my intelligence and my capacity, but I felt myself to be completely stymied and not able to use those qualities that I felt that I had. And also coupling that with a crippling doubt about my, my abilities. So on the one hand, I was very aware that, yes, this is something that I can do. And on the other hand, of course, you absolutely cannot do that. So I was, you know, betwixt and between. And again, many people would choose not to do such a thing. But when you're pressed, when you're completely frustrated, when you can't see a way out, then yes, that becomes a, a, something that you're willing to try to do. At least right. that's what happened to me. Yeah. So you felt 
like you had all these abilities, but you were also, you felt crippled somehow. Exactly. You know, it's as if you were standing against a wall of a building and pushing it with all your might and the building was not going anywhere. Right. And, and so take us, yeah, take us through that, that, that first experience then and, and what that process feel like when you first em- entered what was the, the Primal Institute? You know, how does that go for somebody who is invited to go on this, this journey, or, and you in this case? Well, the way it, it happened for me was I was living on the East Coast of the United States, and the Primal Institute is in Los Angeles, California. So I got on a plane, and on the flight to Los Angeles, I had a panic attack. You know, you're saying, why do people do that? Well, that's exactly what I was thinking. Why am I doing this? I don't know anyone in Los Angeles. I have no idea where I'm going to live, where I'm going to stay. I've never been in a hotel. I don't even know how to register in a hotel. I don't know where I'm going. Uh, the, 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 The Institute had recommended a hotel near the Institute that I could, you know, where I could stay. And I eventually took a taxi. But I remember the moment on the plane thinking, if I could turn this plane around right now, I would do that and go back to what was incredibly unbearable for me before because the unknown was terrifying. So I landed there. I went to the hotel. I paced around in my room. I, you know, cried. I and in in the intensive, you are you're in what they what we called isolation. You're not meant to be making phone calls. You're not meant to be watching television. You're not meant to be reading. You're not meant to be going out to walk around and you know see the sights of this of Los Angeles. You're not meant to be drinking coffee, and you're not meant to be overeating. Those are all the things that I can remember right now. So basically, you're sitting in a. I was sitting in a strange place not knowing a single person and waiting for the, the morning to come so that I could go and start having my therapy. So it right. was basically terrifying. <laughs> right, yes. And for those people who are unaware, the, this idea of the intensive is when, when anybody starts primal therapy, they have this, I suppose, this period where they're doing therapy every day and there's certain rules uh, about how you can ba- behave outside of your sessions. And the, the whole point of that is, you know, the way I say, say to people now, it's not meant to be a punishment and it's not meant to be a horrible experience for you. What it's really meant to do is strip away all the distractions that most of us use to not pay attention to what's happening inside us. You know, you have a horrible day at work, you have a fight with your boss, you come home, you have a glass of wine, you start watching television. If, that, if you're a smoker, you smoke. If you're a runner, you go and run 10 miles, all that, psh, stop. And then yeah. what you're left with, it's what's happening inside you. Yeah, that's right. Um, and of course, I went, I went through that myself. And yeah, it's pretty unbearable. And I was kind of kicking off all of that. Why all these bloody rules? And why do we have to do this? And, uh, but yeah, it, uh, it's, it's there for a purpose. And I actually think at this point, and what I will sometimes say to new people, you can actually consider it a luxury. Because when else in your life is it 
what's asked of you is to totally pay attention only to yourself and how you are feeling as opposed to the things you have to do, your responsibilities, what other people need from you. All of that is gone. It's just you and how, how you're feeling. And are you sad? Are you, do you keep thinking about, you know, your grandmother or, you know, the mean teacher you had in the third grade? Well, that's something you're going to get to talk about when you come to therapy that next day. Right. Yeah. And so what started, what did you start to talk about then as you started to have your session? Well, the way I've laid it out in the book, I really began to talk about my childhood. You know, the therapist, that one of the first things that my therapist asked me is, how are you feeling? And, uh, well, all those things that I said before, really scared and uh, I don't know what I'm going to do. And uh, <laughs> that's exactly what I responded with. And um, uh, it was difficult because, first off, I was quite young. I mean, you know, looking back through the years, I was, you know, 20 years old and had not really had that much life experience. And so I and so my my childhood and the things that had happened to me, my early upbringing, my experiences within my family and at school, they were very close for me. They were um, it was, you know, it's not like someone coming to therapy for the first time when they're 60 years old. All that childhood stuff is pretty far in, in the distance. But for me, it was still relatively close. So. I began talking about my childhood, what it was like growing up in my family, what it was like having, you know, a father who was extremely volatile and very intense and quite violent. So th that's basically where I started. Right. And was this the first time you talked about this? It was the first time I had talked about it with someone other than a person in my family, basically one of my brothers or sisters. So it was my first go at therapy. And um, no, I really had not talked about it with anyone. Right. So, But I guess had you, had you been able to talk openly, let's say, for example, your father, you, had you been able to talk about him as, sort of as an abusive figure and how it impacted you? Well, it, it, it's an interesting question. Yes, I had talked about it, but okay, remember being 18 or 19 years old and you're hanging around with your friends. You're not going to say, you know, my father absolutely terrified me and he was really uh, volatile at any moment. He could hit you for something that seemed relatively minor to you. That's not how most 18 or 19, 16, 17 talk about their families because normally everyone is pretending that everything is okay. So I didn't want to be the only one who's saying, oh, it's really nice for you, but it's not so nice at my house. So I would talk about it, but in my family, one of the things that we use a lot is humor. So it would always be in a kind of joking way or you know, not really with the serious, the serious import of what it really meant. So I had mentioned it, let's say, but what happens in therapy is you don't, just mention it. You don't just say, oh, my, you know, my father was very volatile. Well, the therapist is not going to let that pass. They're, gonna, they're not going to go, oh, yeah, yeah. So uh, then what? 
No, they're going to say, so what do you mean? What do you mean volatile? And they're going to wait. Yeah. And then perhaps you might say, well, you know, he lost his temper very easily. The therapist might say something like, and then what would happen when he lost his temper? And all that while, while they're asking those questions, you're kind of dropping down into what really happened. You know, you're not using all those social conventions of, uh, you know, sliding away from what it is or making a joke about it or saying things like, oh, I'm sure it was much harder for other people. And if you do say things like that, the therapist will say, well, really, it's not about other people right now. Yeah. What, you know, what's it like for you? What was it like for you? And you kind of start descending that staircase into what your true experience was and is. So, and it's true in the sense of, because, because you could, you could describe something in a way that's factually accurate. And in mm -hmm. that sense, it could be true, but we're talking about a different truth here, right? Well, what I some, sometimes have said is they're telling the truth, but not the whole truth. Or Carl Jung said in one of his books, people come into my office and they lie and they lie and they lie. And then finally, they tell the truth. And often, the, from my perspective, often the lie that the person is telling is the lie that they tell themselves. You know, they were doing it for my own, they were doing it for my own good. Or, you know, sometimes what my father would say, which is ludicrous, actually, when he would be hitting us, this hurts me more than it hurts you. And my brothers and sisters and I would say, well, then why don't you hit yourself then? Not to him, but later we'd talk to ourselves and go, well, fine, go ahead and hit yourself. So, yes. People will tell, you know, usually the facts, you know, just the facts, ma'am. And it's the job of the therapist, hopefully, to get into what the facts really mean and what the facts really feel like. So, yeah, then the f feel like being, uh, yeah, I suppose the operative mm -hmm. phrase there, because, uh, well, certainly it's my experience. I just couldn't feel anything and, you know, to, to begin with. Yeah, and I talk about that in my book. I mean, sometimes people come in, come to therapy experiencing themselves as having too many emotions or a lot of emotions or being, you know, getting angry very easily or crying very easily. And then some other people, what they experience is they know they maybe used to have feelings about something, but now it's just flat. And it takes some doing to kind of... Uh, gently open that flatness and find out what is what's happening beneath that layer of uh, not being moved by things or not being moved by your own plight by what happened to you or what it is that you're experiencing. Right. And so what was what was the truth that you started to uncover that moved you as you descended? Right. What what started to emerge? Um. One of the things that I think most people eventually come to when they're working on themselves in this format 
And I think many children experience this. And I think many adults and many parents forget about this once they become adults. And it's the feeling that you're not loved. Because when your parent loses their temper and yells at you and tells you you're, you know, you're stupid or you do everything wrong or, you know, I, I told you once, I told you that, whatever the parent says, but with that intensity of anger and aggression, the child feels not loved. And when we're young, that is our whole, you know, point of being to be loved and to love the other, to love our parents. We, we, we love them. We want to love them. And so to not be loved or to have that experience of not being loved is really very, very painful and very difficult to bear. And I think most people, as they kind of grow into adulthood, they try to have that not be important because it's hopeless. You're not getting it anyway. Right. So there's a different quality there, isn't it? To talk about the the facts that you were hit by your father and you were abused by your father. That's mm-hmm. one level of truth. Right. But to be in I wasn't loved, I didn't feel loved. Right. And the pain of that is a much deeper truth. Uh, exactly. And and to go to that deeper truth, it's not just what will I call it skillful means by the therapist. It's the development of the relationship between the therapist and the patient so that as a patient, you are willing or at least able to trust that person enough to tell them your most vulnerable secret or your your vulnerable secrets. You know, maybe the vulnerable secret is nobody loved me. And I was thinking about this 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 morning. Sometimes people have the experience when they're going into a feeling like, let's say that nobody loves me, their logical, factual mind comes in and will say something like, well, of course, that's not true. You know, this person loved you and that person loved you. And, and that can totally derail the feeling. But in a particular moment when someone is being harsh with you or they've forgotten you, they've left you standing waiting for them to be you know to be picked up from school and nobody turns up the feeling in that moment might very well be nobody loves me and that's the truth of that moment maybe an hour from now that might not be the very very truth but that's exactly what the person is feeling at that time and that's where we go in therapy we try to go to those spots where a feeling is the truth for them at that moment and to be able to listen to that inner truth and not deny it. Yeah. And, you know, and I, we were talking about before the show, I mean, I, I had a conversation with a friend of mine once and I was talking about the fact, you know, I was doing therapy and I asked her, you know, if you ever considered it because I know that she had a quite a distant relationship with her father. And she, she used the metaphor of, of, of a Chinese doll, right? So the way she described it was her fear of doing therapy was, you know, well, what if I open up one of the, the dolls I'm going to find another doll. There's going to be some more underneath that. And then if, and then there'll be another doll to open and then another doll. And, and, and when will it ever end? So I suppose there may be people listening to this and thinking, God, yeah, but if, if I go there and then I come, you know, when, when, when's the, where's the end of this tunnel? I mean, I do, I just carry on 
feeling pain forever and and what's and what's the benefit on the other side of it even if i do well i don't i don't um i don't believe that there's necessarily a pure benefit to feeling pain all the time from my perspective that's not the point the point of feeling the pain when you need to when it is stopping you when it is causing you to do things or not do things that you really want and need to do then you feel that pain so you have the freedom to make a choice because often when we're driven by our pain we really don't have a choice sometimes we think we do you know a person who uh, has a problem with alcohol they think they have a choice about whether they're going to have a drink or two drinks or three drinks or four drinks or five drinks but really, when you get down to it, they don't. Once they start, they don't have a choice. So the nesting doll uh, um, metaphor or analogy, there's a certain truth to that because I actually believe that the, the possibility of our human growth, since this is being human, is that we continue to grow through the course of our lives all of that growth, all of that opening of the nesting doll will not be in therapy. But yes, you might go through two or three or four or five layers of that doll. But that doesn't mean that you get to the end and okay, now I'm fully cooked and there's nothing more for me to learn and I'm not going to grow anymore. And it's just great exactly the way it is. That's really a false sense of what it is. So there's a certain truth to it that when you open up, let's say the issue of you know, the very scary father, and you do a lot of work around that. As you go maybe deeper, then maybe the next thing you come on is, well, what about my mother? Why was she standing there letting this happen? Then there's the whole thing, and then, the mother. And then maybe there's school, and there's relationship with your brothers and sisters. Yes, so there are multiple layers of the work that might be done. But for most people, there comes a point where, yeah, I'm not... I haven't traversed every single possible feeling that a human being can work on, but I am in a pretty stable, steady place. I can cry when I need to. I can do the things I want and need to do. I can have a deep relationship with someone if I so choose. I can do the work that I want to do. I can be good with my children. Okay, I'm going to stop now and live my life. And that's often what people do. They get to a, a spot where they're not, thrown about by their feelings. They're not driven by pain or anger or aggression. And they're going to go live their lives. And sometimes things come up again, you know, maybe 10 years, 15 years down the line, they come across something that they want to work on again for a while. And people do come back to therapy and work for a period of time, six months or a year, and then they go off and live their lives. So that's my answer to your friend with the nesting dolls. Do you think that would suffice for her? <laughs> well, I think what's interesting is what the way I like the way you described it is that it's almost as if you could say, well, that's true. Mm -hmm. And as you as you deal with another of these dolls, you said more choice opens up. Mm -hmm. And I think that's that's that is what's on the other side and that's certainly been my experience. Um, yeah. what what choices started opening up for you so you said you came into this position where you feel felt like you had all these capabilities and yet you also felt stymied and what what choices opened up to you as you started to work on let's say on your father or the issues around your father well you know 
in a certain way, I don't want this to be all about me, but um, one of the main drivers for me in entering therapy was that I wanted to be able to go to school. I wanted to, you know, get a degree, complete my degrees, begin to do work, working with people on the human mind, on being human to, you know, take the Mm. name of your show. And that is what I was able to do. I, you know, shortly after, not too long after I was in therapy, I went back to college. I got my degree, got my bachelor's degree, got my master's degree, went into training at the Institute, became a therapist. That, that was part of what happened to me. And I would say that for many people, they often, sometimes people will change careers. You know, they've been, they grew up in a family that, you know, everyone's supposed to be a dentist and, you know, they're going to dental school and they're working very hard at that. And then, you know, kind of on the side, maybe they're a painter or they're a pianist, but, and that's truly been their passion. They might choose that. Yes, my family wants me to be a dentist and it's a very safe and secure profession and I will always make the money that I need, but I really want to be a painter. And sometimes people make that choice that no, they're not going to complete their dental studies. They're going to, you know, go to uh, Art Institute of Chicago and they're going to they're going to make that be their be the thing that they do. Or sometimes people continue in that career and they also do the other thing. They don't, maybe before they felt their choice was either or. Sometimes it becomes and. Yes, I'm really fascinated by dentistry or surgery or being a lawyer, but I'm also really moved by writing or painting and the choice opens up. Perhaps they can do both or maybe even a third thing as well. So that, that was what opened for me and that's what opens for many people. Right. Now, now of course, I, I completely agree with everything you're saying and that's absolutely mm-hmm. been my experience. Mm-hmm. But I still think there are a lot, of, you know, a lot of people out there who have a very negative view of, of therapy. You know, mm-hmm. They... They consider it, you know, maybe it's self-indulgent, it's navel-gazing, you know, it's ultimately a bit of a waste of time. Uh, you know, you hear, I never really got anywhere with it. It's something I hear quite a lot of for people who've, who've been through a therapeutic process. And I think there is a major distinction between the type of therapy which is, is analytical, that, kinds, that, that has you look at, perhaps look at your childhood uh, to some extent, but only really as a means to understanding your current thought patterns and behaviors and is about encouraging you to think new thoughts and behave in new ways versus this you know, primal therapy or deep feeling therapy or regression therapy, where you're, you're doing something quite different. I wonder if you could elaborate on, on the differences between these styles of, of therapy and, and what it means for people. Well, an analogy that I... I use in my book is the analogy of if you are walking through a forest and you are bitten by a poisonous snake and you go someplace for help and you are able to say yes that you were bitten you're perhaps able to identify the snake that bit you you're able to uh, with maybe perhaps this other person understand what the effects of the poison of this snake might be those three things aren't going to do you any good if you've been bitten by a snake. 
what you really what you need to do in addition, because you do need that information and you do need that analytical process. But what you also need is an antidote to the poison. You need something that's going to stop the effect of that poison and reverse the poisonous trend that is happening in your body. If you've been bitten by a rattlesnake, those are endemic here to the United States or, you know, in Central America, they're, they're coral snakes that, you know, within an hour of you being bitten, your leg could be twice the size that it was before. So fully understanding what happened without taking appropriate action is not, you, you know, you, you're going to die. So that's my res- response to the, the, the point of view of it, therapy is only about understanding. I mean, and there are people that getting that understanding is quite, is enough for them. Once they have that understanding or get a sense that, no, it wasn't really all about me. It was the situation that I was in. That can be very helpful. That can help the person begin to move forward. But I, but I, but my point of view is that for extremely severe trauma, fully understanding what happened will not do you that much good because the trauma still acts upon your body. You know, it's like a person who's, you know, like those soldiers, soldiers who go to war and have post-traumatic stress disorder. They understand very well that, yes, I was in a war zone for a year and every move I made, somebody might be trying to kill me. And half of the people that I knew died Their, you know, their car was blown up. They know that very well, but they could be walking down the street in London and hear a loud noise. And the next thing they know, they're on the ground trying to get under a car. Understanding is not going to stop their body from doing that. So, you know, it's, it's, that, it's that dichotomy. I, I think the, 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 I keep doing this because it's the two hands. You need the understanding and the insight. And sometimes because of what is, how your body has been traumatized, you need the experience of being able to release that trauma through your, through feeling. So I don't think it's one or the other because primal therapy slash deep feeling therapy is not only about, you know, crying your eyes out 24 seven or even every day or once a week. That won't do you any good either. If all you do is cry and cry and cry and cry and you don't have any understanding or insight, you need both of them together. So, right. Yeah, that's, it's the, it's the both. And I, and I sometimes read, in fact, I read a book recently that somebody who was characterizing primal therapy as just being just about emoting and it's just catharsis. And, uh, and if it were that, I would agree that it has limited value, but of course you have to marry that with the insight and understanding of what it means for your life. And so, well, and, uh, and let's just say in a typical session, you and I were talking at the beginning about, you know, some things a therapist might say to help you start moving more closely into your feelings. Well, once the person has had their feeling and they're finished crying or being angry or whatever the emotion was and they, you know, they're, they've blown their nose and they're, you know, they're back talking the way you and I are talking, then they talk about what that feeling meant, what their, what occurs to them that it's connected to. Oh, that helped. Now I understand why I always or I never or why it upsets me when la 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 happens. So that's the insight part of it. And then once you have the insight, it's how you go about changing your life. Right. And certainly it's been my experience. If if I don't, if I just have some kind of emotional release, Mm -hmm. but it's not really connected to some event or it's not 
clearly connected to a past event or something or experience then then it is just catharsis and i can't really make much sense of it and of course a skilled therapist works with you to make sure that it's rooted in something it's yeah rooted in your own experience and and that the connection between your mind and your body is rejoined because you know there often is a kind of discordance like what your mind is saying and what your body is experiencing you know you know if you Maybe this never happened to you, but many young children have the experience of waking up in the night and being afraid that something's under their bed. And it really doesn't help you if your parent comes in and says, oh, don't be silly. There's nothing under your bed and leaves the room. That really doesn't make you feel any better. But if your parent comes in and they enter into your emotion, oh, that sounds like it. maybe it was really scary. Let me check. You know, they get down on the floor and they look under the bed. You know, I'm. I've checked. There's nothing under the bed now, you know, and I'll stay here with you for a while till you go back to sleep. That helps. But just being told it's silly, it's pointless, don't bother with that, that doesn't help you. Yeah. And same thing with, you know, that kind of dichotomy between what are fully rational and um, in total agreement with our parents part of our mind is saying to us while the other, you know, our body and our experiences is saying something totally different. Right. Yeah. I think that's, that's, that's such an important point. And I remember when I started doing my, my, uh, intensive, all I could say was, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. And therapists would be asking me every day, how are you feeling? How are you feeling? How do you feel about this? How do you feel about it? I'm fine. It was fine. It was fine. <laughs> and he well, just that, keeps that, what do you mean by fine? And well, I just told you I'm okay. And you know, eventually, eventually, after like three weeks, I started to be able to name a few feelings. Yeah. Well, what that reminds me of is in my in my one of my first sessions, my therapist asked me, "So how are you doing?" And I said, "I'm fine." And my therapist said, "Are you really fine, or are you socially fine? Are you really fine?" And I stopped for a moment and actually I wasn't really fine. I was being, I was socially fine. Yeah. 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 And that's the difference. So your mind, yeah, that's, 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 that's discordant, right? When you, exactly. when you say you're fine and yet you, you've got all kind of feelings going on in your body, which I wasn't even aware of to begin with, right? I, I wasn't aware of my own discordance. I mean, that was the first thing to, that sort of had to be revealed to me, really. Well, you, you, you had totally been socialized mm. to be fine and to not be a problem or to not need someone to be there with you and help you work through the places where you were not fine. And then in the course of therapy, you discover that, okay, you can be socially fine. You can go out there and do your job. But in the privacy of your therapy session or in your own home, you really can pay attention to what it is you're most deeply experiencing. Right. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, we talked about, you know, who, who is this for? And I think it's right that it's people, for people it's who, who have been deeply traumatized. Mm-hmm. But I, I also, you know, reflect on a lot of people who we talked about being driven, mm-hmm. you know, who are just who are driven 
to drink alcohol, but maybe not in a really extreme way. They're, they're driven to continually overreact in particular circumstances, underreact in other circumstances. Mm-hmm. And they spend a lot of energy uh, in investing in strategies to manage these behaviors that they're not comfortable with. Mm-hmm. Uh, or hide part, them. Yeah. Or pretend that there's something else going on than really what is happening. Yeah. And it's all, yeah. And for those people, if they were to descend into yeah, the feelings that are driving even those, I suppose, you know, relatively innocuous and, you know, addictions or compulsions, they, they'd experience this enormous benefit in their lives. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I, I think. Um, but it seems that only those who are the most hurt, right, find their way to this therapy or some combination of, of well, level of hurt. that was and very true in the, ver- in the very, very beginning. But um, I've, you know, over the years worked with people that, you know, their, their, their childhood wasn't, there was their childhood was not necessarily violent. They weren't physically traumatized. They were not abused. But there's also the trauma of neglect. Yeah, you know there are there are people who grow up in families that every physical thing that you could possibly want is there. You know, you have beautiful home, food is always available, clothing is lovely. Then maybe your parents are those driven people that are working, uh, you know, twelve hours a day, and they don't have time for you. They're 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 busy, 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 important people. That's the trauma. It's, it's a slow moving trauma. And it's actually some can be somewhat difficult for a person going into therapy to articulate to themselves or to the therapist, because on the surface, everything looks so good. It looks good on paper. It looks good on video, but it just doesn't feel good. Right. Yeah. But, I mean, in fact, you know, I saw some research I'm sorry, you asked me a question a moment ago, and I don't think I fully addressed it. What was the question that you asked me? Um, Oh, darn, it went out of my head. You were asking about therapy. Who? Now, wasn't the question about who? What was your question just before who would therapy benefit? Can you remember? Hmm. Because we got sidetracked, yeah. It'll yeah, probably- I, yeah, it'll come back. But I was just going to add that you know I, I remember reading some research a while back about how the the children of executives, mm-hmm. uh, senior executives, uh, there is a higher incidence of addiction uh, with the children of senior executives, and that's usually because senior executives you know are um, working very long hours <laughs> and tend to not have a lot of time for their kids, and uh, even though they may grow up in great material privilege uh yeah they they may be they don't get that personal uh interaction with their parents and often those very high level executives they're getting paid you know sometimes millions of dollars and those millions of dollars require them to be available to their job nearly all of the time so um, that person is basically married to their job and their job is their child as well and their actual physical child is getting short shrift, though their physical needs are being well taken care of. Right. Yeah. 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 Uh, 
and I also, you know, was reflecting on the fact that how are, uh, and this is where it sort of ties in these two threads within this podcast is the, is the sort of trauma recovery and therapy on one hand and workplace culture is that workplace culture can also have an impact in the home, right? If I'm t- treated like an automatum in my job, I'm a- atomized, you know, my, I, I'm tied down in terms of how I behave each day. Uh, some of that's going to come back into the workplace, right? It, you know, I can't expect, you know, on the one hand, expect to be this sort of this good soldier, this good robot in the workplace, nine to five, and then come home and be this sort of empathetic, creative, expressive, tuned in parent for my children. I mean, that's pretty unrealistic to expect I can make that shift. Exactly. You know, on the commute home. And so I also think there's this uh, this spillover of, of workplace culture into the family, which can also be traumatizing for kids. Well, definitely so. And, you know, from my own experience, my father was in the military. So that there was a definite spillover. The, you know, the instant obedience, the, uh, the toughness, the... Ah, I just remember the question that you asked me. You said there's, you were saying that there's a suspicion about therapy, you know, that there's, uh, people have, you know, why would you want to do that? Or there, there, there's a question of what is it about therapy? Why, why are people, why do people have these suspicions? And one of the things I was going to say is that's actually very English. In England, there is a very great deal of, um, suspicion and disparagement of therapy why would you want to do that and you know there's a certain part of america with the another group of americans who are very very gung-ho about therapy and working on yourself and being human and growing growing and becoming more of who you actually are and i think a lot of the suspicion about therapy has to do with it has to do with our culture with our work culture that you're meant to be doing your job, that you're meant to be tough, that you're meant to be taking care of business, and that you're, not, you're meant to not need anything. And therapy implies all of those things are not true, that you do need something, that you, need to be, that you are vulnerable. And in order to, for therapy to really work, you, you need to allow yourself to become vulnerable with another person. It requires you to trust another person very deeply, which most of our culture is all about not doing that. So to me, that, ex- that kind of explains the, uh, the suspicion and the, the, the reluctance to enter into therapy because it's frightening. It can be frightening to allow yourself to be vulnerable and to begin to try to trust another person. And you mentioned that you you know, you have some friends who have said about therapy, well, it really didn't do very much for me. And my thought would be either the form of therapy was not one that was really aligned with who they are, or the therapist was not the correct therapist for them. You know, what I advise people to do, if you have the opportunity, is to interview several therapists, go and talk to them, have a session with them, and see if you feel that there's a match. That you, even though you don't trust them yet because you don't really know them, that you'd be willing to try to trust that person. And if you're not, if you have a weird feeling about them, if you're like, I don't think I want to tell them all of my secrets, then that probably isn't the, a good connection for you. They may be a great therapist, but they might not be a good compatible mix for you. So, right. 
Yeah, and that's one of the things you talk about in the book in terms of the difference between deep feeling therapy and, and primal therapy, at least, uh, you know, how it's often practiced. And that is, it's almost like the, the, the therapist doesn't really matter, right? You know, as long as they're following the process, that's what's important. Uh, mm-hmm. And actually, you, you, you make the point that actually developing a relationship between the therapist and the patient is very important. Well, because I, I think for most people that, that come into therapy or that grew up in difficult circumstances, and the difficulties may be very different as we were talking about, you know, abusive, violent, volatile situations, or uh, in the lap of luxury, but without the parental, the deep parental connection. Once that person is an adult, they basically don't trust people. You know, they can be friendly, they can appear nice, but at their core, they're not, they're not willing they do not trust other people. And it takes a lot for them to trust another human being. And that is, you know, it's like the basic trust has been broken somehow in their childhood. And again, from my perspective, the basis of therapy is rebuilding that trust, starting with the therapist, hopefully, and then moving on to other people in your, in your present life. You know, take that risk of telling someone the truth, perhaps that they upset you or that they hurt your feelings, that something they said didn't feel very funny to you, but it made you feel bad. That's vulnerable. You know, you, 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 you have to trust the person to say that to them. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And that's the thing I've, I mean, I certainly came into therapy, not really trusting anybody. Yeah. Um, but as you say, I could, I, I, uh, I'd use my brain to develop social skills. Right. And you, uh, you knew how to move through a social situation. Yeah. But again, when someone in your early therapy said, so how are you? You were fine. That was yeah. the social skilled answer, socially skilled right. answer and the non-trusting answer. Right. Yeah. A very good point. Right. Right. Very good point. Yeah. And yeah. as you said, by near the end of your therapy, your three weekend, you know, your intensive, you were able to say something other than fine. About how right, you were. And, and it was actually because the therapist suggested I go watch a movie, and I watched this particular movie uh, about a breakup, and I'd experienced a breakup uh, not lo- that long before entering therapy, and I, you know, I cried for the first time in year, you know, maybe five years or something, mm. and I came in the next day, and yeah, I think that was the first time I'd able to say, no, I'm not f- fine. I felt sad watching this movie last night. Mm. And, then it, and then it started from there and then I, you know, I, I cried again, you know, so that was twice in 24 hours, which was, you know, uh, extraordinary hey. for me at that point. Uh, and, and it, yeah. And that sort of, I That's suppose that was a firing it's, it's gun on there. Yes. Yeah, 15 years of, of crying. Uh, yeah. Well, most what days. Was the movie? What was the movie? Uh, I was the note. It was a notebook. Yeah. Ah. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so that's that's yeah, that was my that was yeah, your gateway. Story. That was that my was your... that was my gateway into it, and and a- absolutely that the 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 girl I spoke to and talked about the the Chinese girl dolls and nested dolls, completely correct. Uh, but it, it has just been sort of one, you know, one feeling after another after another, and you you know you resolve something, and then something else is able to emerge and new themes are constantly emerging 
have been over this period. I, I see the metaphor more like waves, right? And sometimes mm. I've had really storied, stormy days and sometimes it's been calm. And, you know, so, we, so these feelings come in waves. Uh, but ultimately more and more choices opened up and I've become more and more connected. Uh, and the other thing heart. is that in, in working your way through each one of those dolls, you regain aspects of yourself that had been shut away from you. So when you go to that next doll, there's more of you available to deal yeah. with whatever that, that doll contains for you. And you, rather than feeling, and I think some people have a very strong fear that they're going to feel weaker and, um, you know, incredibly vulnerable that they break down sobbing every day in the grocery store when they're trying to buy a quart of milk. That's actually not what happens. There's more of you available to handle the things that come up for you in a way that you did not have before. That's, that's mostly my experience. Yeah. I mean, I think that's true. And, um, I'd say two things. I mean, one is, um, you know, I think we sort of retain this switch, or at least I have, that I can just, I can just turn off the tap. You know, mm -hmm. I can, I can say, okay, you know, I need to go back into socially functioning mode now, mm -hmm. and I can live my life. But also, I think what I've found is, um, I will burst into tears on the train, or I will burst into tears uh, in, in driving home. Because because stuff's just coming up and and there's a part of my body that doesn't want to let it doesn't want to keep it down anymore and it and, and will take any opportunity to let it out and because the de the development of your capacity for trust means that you have the strength and the capacity to be able to cry on the train because if something happens you trust yourself that you know that if suddenly there's you know. A, a weird person on the train and you need to take some action, you're going to stop crying and take care of it. You're going to yeah. do what you need to do. You, you have that internal trust in your capacity to deal with a difficult circumstance. So it's not, uh, it's not a total loss of your sense of ability to deal with things as they happen. You know, I, sometimes yeah. I would, people in early in their therapy would ask me that question. Well, you know, am I going to just become a puddle of water on the floor all the time? I said, you could be in the middle of the deepest feeling of your life. And if there was suddenly a fire in the building, you would know how to get up from crying and get out of that building because you're, you have that capacity. As you said, to turn it off if need be, you could be feeling, uh, you could be crying your eyes out and you, someone next to you on the train has a heart attack, you would... <laughs> Stop crying and you would start trying to help them. It's not that that controls you. It's a capacity that you have that you can allow. Yeah, I think that, 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 that's right. And, and the other thing you said that I think is, is right, you know, you get more of you and that's not just metaphorically. I literally can feel, have a great sense of my body. Like, mm -hmm. I know this is going to, but a lot of the tension I held from, you know, from, from my stories, a birth trauma, right? Where I sort of, frozen and couldn't get out mm. and 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 literally literally i've i've developed a greater sense within myself of parts of the backs of my legs of my chest you know so so i feel more of myself at a very much a bodily level you know as well mm -hmm. as the sort of the, the the other sense in which you know i've got more of my sort of emotional self to express from so 
Yeah. Well, and it, it, it's hard to, let's say, trust your body and trust your capacity when because of whatever your life circumstance has been, you're not really living in your body. You know, I used to say, you know, living from the eyebrows up and, the, and your body's just something to move that yeah. around. And then when your entire sense of yourself permeates your whole body, you discover that you have capacities that you really didn't even know were, were there. So Right. Exactly. Capacities. And, and I was, I was, you know, I was really clumsy, you know, I was diagnosed with dyspraxia when I was a kid with, you know, the clumsy child syndrome. And I don't really relate to myself as clumsy anymore. And I think that's simply because I'm just more aware of where my body parts are and what, you know, how I am in space. Yeah. I'm living in my body. And so uh, I think that is a very, you know, that's a nut. So we talked about choice being one of the benefits of taking this deep dive in. Mm. It's also becoming you know, more embodied, you know, having this greater sense of myself, who I am uh, physically, well, and emotionally. And, and another thing that I view as one of the really great benefits of therapy is that often because of whatever happened in our childhood as we were growing up in our young years in school, as we get older, we lose a sense of compassion for ourselves, for our own suffering. And in doing that, we lose it for other people as well. It, you know, it, it gets muted. It's not that we become like a, you know, a narcissistic monster, but, you know, you're just kind of closed down. But as you begin to experience your own pain, your own sadness, your own anger, you're emotionally more free and more available to yourself. And so you can have a greater sense of compassion for perhaps your children, if you have children or someone that you're close to who's going through a difficult time. If, if we're shut off from our feelings, let's say if a coworker has a great tragedy, sometimes people, and people will say that when they've gone through a great tragedy, their friends or their coworkers avoid them. You know, they kind of distance from them. And why do they do that? Because they don't know what to do. Right. But when you're more in touch with yourself, you maybe have a greater understanding that it's not that you're going to do anything that's going to make it all better for that person, but you can be there with them for a moment. You know, whether it is that you put your arm around their shoulder or you just are there with them and say how sorry you are that it happened, whatever it is, as opposed to, oh, hi, <laughs> and off you go, because you don't know what to do with yourself when someone is suffering. But when you've encountered your own suffering, you're willing to be there for a moment with another person, another human being. Yeah. So I've, I've found that, I mean, I just, I used to be completely paralyzed. I mean, I remember early in my relationship with my current partner, she, she fell on a, on a ski trip, you know, she sort of lost her feeling and she was sort of in a bit of a pile on the floor and her female friends came, came, came to comfort her. And I just sort of stood there like, well, I don't know. Like, do I you know, just, just throw literally no clue how to deal with somebody who was, who I cared for and was upset. Right. Yeah. And, and she was quite angry with me. Yeah. You know, why didn't you come and come at me? You know? And I, uh, that's something I've definitely grown in my capacity to kind of tune mm-hmm. in. Uh, I mean, others will be the judge of this, of course, but I believe I've mm-hmm. developed uh, a greater capacity for compassion, but also love, like with my kids, because I've been active in therapy, like my kids are now three. And I've mm-hmm. seen over the period of that three years, even uh, out of, you know, what, 15 years, that my ability to just feel like in the moment, I, God, I love you, you know, 
to, mm. to my child is is definitely in, in, uh, increased over the period I've been working on myself. Exactly. You know, the, the, to, to, the ability to be in touch, not just with your sad emotions or your painful emotions or your therapeutic emotions, but in dealing with those, it's kind of uh, it's paradoxical. And by by going into those, your capacity for the joyous, loving, happy, connected emotions also become that that becomes more available to you. I mean, in varying degrees, we all have it. But when we're having to close down and shut down a great deal of painful emotion, then it, it, you know it's 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 a it, it's it's not a very discriminating volume control. When you turn down the volume on those yeah, negative exactly. emotions, That's right. the positive emotions get turned down as well. So Yeah. And I think I had two, you know, and I reflect on this, and I kind of had two modes before therapy. It was either shut down or high, right? Or, you know, drunk or high. You know, it was I that that was that was the two feeling states. It was yeah, it was shut down or some kind of outer body high, right? Uh, um <laughs> But yeah, that's the difference is you become less shut down. You experience a lot more pain and a lot more joy and you have less need to feel high. You know, that's, right. that, that's how I, I, I see it. Um, and, you know, we talked about workplace culture before and, and this, is, <laughs> this is something that I think is starting to see a little bit of creeping in to, to culture now is like this acceptance that we, for example, might start a meeting with a check-in, right? Like, how are people feeling, right? <laughs> What's going on? Like, so, so this is something I'm noticing. Mm. What, what do you, because there's, there's, there's the kind of therapy that happens between a therapist and a patient, you know, in a, in a treatment room or in a, you know, wherever it happens. And then there's the sort of, I suppose, this, the, this broader idea of us becoming more comfortable with feelings in society in general. What, what, what do you think about that? I think there is a greater acceptance, but there's still very much a workplace, I would say, workplace uh, culture and what is acceptable that is is very different than let's say being in therapy or even being with your, your very close intimates, but it's not, there has been a change. And I think part of the change has to do with uh, growth of an, of awareness in our, in our society. But I also wonder if it has to do with there being more women in the workplace and women in the workplace having uh, higher level positions in that when it's all when all the um, the leadership positions are men, there's a certain man culture, you know, being tough, being, being very stiff, making, not admit, admitting any vulnerability. And that is starting to, I won't say soften, but it's starting to open up. And I believe that women have an effect on that. And I believe the movement of therapy and uh, growth and development, our development of our human capacities is percolating through our culture. So yeah. that, that's one of the things. And I, and I also think it has a lot to do with the younger people. You know, of course, here in the United States, there's the very intense emotional um, 
experience that many African-American people are having around George Floyd murders and uh, the, the, the many that have been in the news over this last very short period of time and the, that, those, that very intense experience of the emotions of grief and rage and sadness and protest and that young people, black and white, all cultures are coming together to protest against this uh, systemic aggression against young people, brown people, black people, immigrants. And I believe that 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 has percolated down, especially into the young people, so that they can have that compassion for someone other than themselves. I believe that that, that's a very great benefit of uh, the uh, human potential movement, the, the growth of awareness of feelings, emotions, depth of human experience. That that's kind of my belief. And right. But, but I guess, so that, that's an interesting one to reflect on because, of course, um, because, yes, certainly it seems like, uh, yeah, we, we have this great, you know, I suppose outpouring of emotion, mm-hmm. um, particularly, you know, around you know, the, the context you've just described. Mm-hmm. But but is that but there is a difference right between kind of getting angry at the man mm-hmm. and descending into our own feelings uh and the, and the anger that we may have had around our early childhood experiences and see i see cuz cuz can it sometimes actually be a bit of an act out to to externalize this and get angry you know with the system uh, where and that may uh, that may be a defense against absolutely something it can be inside. a defense, but but it's also a defense for someone to or or it's it's a response to earlier trauma that a person becomes paralyzed and they don't do anything. They have those very intense emotions, but they're not expressing them in any way, or the emotions are so intense that they completely shut down. So. The capacity to express, and it is not necessarily always anger and aggression. Sometimes it's compassion for the people that have suffered. Sometimes it's solidarity with people that mm. uh, are being badly treated. So, yes, you know, anything that we humans can do can be an act out. I mean, you know, we can, we can, we can transmute anything that we do into something that is a protectant against what's happening internally. But um, I remember early on in my therapy, some people were concerned that, okay, if I work my way through my feelings and I go deep, deep inside, does that mean I'm just going to be a couch potato and sit around and not care about culture and other people? No, it means, or it can mean that you have maybe greater compassion for other people's suffering and you might choose to do something about it. But that, um, that kind of anger that's only focused outward against the system or the man that also can be a defense. You know, as I said, anything we do, we can use in a defensive manner. Yeah, because, and, and I say that because, you know, that's certainly been my experience. It's, I would, you know, the, uh, there was all kind of people I was angry in my, li- in my life about. You know, I'm angry this person's got ahead and I haven't, and this person's been given this opportunity and I haven't. Uh, and I was never somebody sort of out on the streets protesting, but I, I definitely 
had that kind of anger, most of it in my head, right? I mean, I have to say I was never somebody who, who, you know, physically really expressed it, but certainly in my head and I would sort of drink it away or, you know, find some way to sort of dissolve it. Um, but that's got, that, that's reduced, you know, massively. Right. So I, I, and, over the course of my therapy. If you, were a, if you were a social activist, you would be much more effective as you are now than you would have been expressing that kind of anger and aggression then, because now you, you may see that something is wrong. It doesn't necessarily make you furious, furious or make you angry, but it might help you be able to see how to take effective action or how you can truly be helpful in the situation in a way that when we're just angry, we can't even see. It doesn't even seem as a possibility. So mm. yeah, I think it does not mean that as you work your way through your feelings, you're going to be like, all is peace and love. I don't have to do anything in the world. No, we do things. Let's say if you're walking down the street and you saw someone abusing a child, you wouldn't necessarily run up and start screaming in their face, but you might say, you might intervene in some way by saying, uh, can I help you? Is there something that, you know, is, can I be of help in any way? That's an intervention too. And it might be more, much more helpful than beginning to yell and shout at that person and tell them that they're abusive, you know, they're doing the wrong thing with their child. Right. So, and I find that, I find that actually with my, um, my partner, right, is that I can be more present, you know, if, if she's having a bad day or whatever, you know, in the past time I've reacted to that, mm -hmm. uh, you know, sort of fight fire with fire. And now I'm not all the time, but I'm more likely to sort of, be able to hey. distance myself a little bit from the anger and say, okay, is there anything I can help with? What, how, what, can I, what can I do right now to help you? Exactly. And sometimes all, probably all she needs is just to vent totally and tell you all about how horrible it was. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I think that's right. And not so we, necessarily meaning that you did something wrong because, you know, when we've got that, we've, you know, we've been made to feel wrong a lot. If someone tells you something is not okay for them, it can raise the defensive hackles very quickly. Like I didn't do anything wrong because we've been made to feel wrong so many times that even if everything is not okay, then it must be our fault and we need to defend against that. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I think, um, I think that's right. But then there's this, there's this other thing that emerges. I think that's, that's, it's, it's this ability to be assertive, right? So I can, I can, I can say that's not okay, right? Mm -hmm. You know, that's oh. not okay. Uh, I'm not going to get, uh, you know, I'm not going to get violently angry about this. You know, or, or, you know, this, this is the trend, right? It's not like I never lose my temper, but the trend is I'm less likely to get sort of really angry about something. Uh, but if I sense some kind of injustice and something I'm not uncomfortable with, I'll say that's not okay. No, that's, right. that's not okay right and that and is thing, that is one of the differences so yeah you're, it's not like i've become a couch potato a piece of light piece of light right. you know I, although i'm there to experience more peace and light in my life exactly I'm also uh yeah becoming more effective at being protective around my own boundaries and what i'm going to accept, exactly. and accept. yeah and you know the, the whole peace and light thing often sometimes you'll encounter those people that they're able to talk that the, the peace and light game but if they get pushed. <laughs> a volcano can erupt very quickly. Yeah. So, you know, it, it, it's really being the balance of who you actually are. 
being able to, at the moment that you first notice that something is not okay, to be able to say then, that's not okay for me, as opposed to you swallow it and you smile and you try to pretend it's okay and pretend it's okay. And then whoosh, there's a big eruption because it's just built up and gotten more and more intense internally. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I'm just reminded of somebody who was really into her Zen Buddhist and I spent the day with her. She'd, she'd just been meditating for like three hours and we got out of the meditation. I'd met her and we went to the, the train station and the, the, the train, uh, left without her and she completely exploded in rage wow after three hours of meditating you know so that's that's you know that's a great example of where we sort of if we put medic meditation as a sort of medication Mm -hmm. on top of um you know a lot of anger and hurt it doesn't it doesn't really serve us um which is which is again a reason why i think it's important that we as you say we 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 learn to descend as well as ascend, right? We've got to take take the ladder down into the take floor. the go down the steps into what our deepest experience is, and then when we come back up, we have more of ourselves available, and you know, often we're able to move through the world in a way that is much more truthful and uh, deep and connected to ourselves and uh, capacity to connect to other people. That, right. you know, that's from my perspective, some of the great benefit of doing therapy. Yeah. Um, now I wanted to end on for those. So there will be some people who, you know, who may come to this podcast, you know, and because they have an interest in primal therapy. And of mm-hmm. course, that's where you started your journey. And now we have deep feeling therapy. And we've touched on one of the differences between the two. And that is this, you know, this focus on the relationship between therapist and, mm-hmm. and the transference. Yeah, the transfer. So I just, yeah, explain that a little bit. When you, you just talked about transference for people who are well, not familiar the, with it. You know, the, the transference in psychological terms means that when you have a tendency, we humans have a tendency to transfer to other people our, our feelings and uh, emotions from our childhood. So if you had, you know, a, an aggressive father and you encounter uh, an authority figure, a policeman, you you have a tendency to respond to that policeman as if they were your father. So in the context of therapy, transference is we have the tendency and uh, basically it happens. We transfer the the experiences we had with our parents onto our therapist and we expect to receive from our therapist what we receive from our parents. And it's part of the process of therapy to work your way through that. If you expect that your therapist is going to be angry with you, you behave in a certain way. If you had an angry parent and you expect your therapist is going to be angry, then you behave in certain ways. And it's the process of therapy that you get to talk about and realize, oh, I keep expecting my therapist to be the way my parents were or a very strong feeling comes up about your therapist and you work your way into it and the connection is oh yeah that's exactly how my dad was with me or my mom was with me so in uh primal therapy uh especially in the early days uh dr janov maintained that there was no such thing as transference in primal therapy but i found that to be completely untrue there was definitely transference you know from in my early days as a patient from me to my therapist and then as a therapist 
from my patients to me. So. And so you acknowledge that and it's something you manage as part. And it can be very fruitful. You know, if a person comes in and they say, oh, I'm five minutes late, I'm sure you're really, really angry with me. Well, it's really not my job to say, oh, no, I'm not angry. What is it you need to talk about today? No, I say, so what makes you so sure I'm angry? Or tell me about me being very angry with you, what you think is going to happen. What does that mean? You know, we just keep talking about it. And as we talk, the, 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 the correlations and the resonances start to occur to the person that they maybe realize, oh, I always expect people to be angry with me. And, mm. and what about that? And where does that come from? Oh, because there was a very angry household that I grew up in. And, you know, then we go down into what the, what the feeling actually is. Yeah. So yeah. And- that's how... So that's so that's one actually acknowledging, accepting, working with the trans the transference. And what what else distinguishes deep feeling therapy from primal therapy? Well, you mentioned it earlier, and that is that the the connection between the therapist and the patient is actually very greatly important. And it's not that therapists or your connection to a therapist they're like widgets, and you can just stick one in and everything will come out as it needs to. It's Follow the, the protocol. It'll right. It, it's in the, on the basis of the depth and, of the relationship and the transference activities that take place and working through those transference activities and developing the, the actual trust in the relationship and the trust in the process of therapy itself that growth and change takes place. So, you know, transference, the connection with the therapist, in my days, when I was trained at the Institute and worked at the Institute and was the director of the New York Institute, the point of view was that you had your three-week intensive with a particular therapist. And then after that, you just worked with whoever was available when you came to group. And you did not have ongoing individual therapy sessions after your three-week intensive. And so I found that to be not as helpful as when I began my own practice to have the three-week intensive with me as a therapist, and then continue individual work in addition to working in group that allowed the, the trust and the development of the relationship between myself and my patients to deepen and grow, and that facilitated the therapy process. And the other basis on which I had a, a point of disagreement with Dr. Janoff, and this was based on his own early training as a psychoanalyst, was that uh, his point of view was that uh, homosexuality was a neurosis and that that neurosis needed to be worked on and dealt with and cured. And, um, you know, as I talk about in my book, I, uh, you know, I kind of accepted that when I first went into training, but I had a patient that I worked with who was homosexual and his point of view was that, no, this was, this has been my sexual orientation from when I was very young. So, this therapy is telling me that everything about me is wrong and that I need to do something to make myself very different than who I am and how I am. And that was a revelation to me. I really had to deeply think about and consider that. And it, it changed my point of view. It, it made me see that again, as I said, anything that we humans do can be neurotic, but there are just as many heterosexual neurotics as there might be homosexual neurotics and the sexual orientation of heterosexuality or homosexuality is not necessarily neurotic. 
Yeah, I think that's the important point is necessarily, because I remember when I read that section of your book, I was, you know, I came to therapy. I mean, I've got a heterosexual orientation, you know, and I've got a partner, I've got kids. But one of the reasons I came to therapy was, you know, I acted out sexually. Let's mm. just say outside of that orientation. Mm. And that changed, you know, so that, so my, my, you know, that, that changed over the course of my therapy. Mm. Um, so I did experience a shift in my sexuality over the course. Right. Of, well, people of often therapy. do, you know, people often, I won't necessarily say that they have a shift in their, that, their identification, but in how that's expressed, you know, it's incredibly neurotic if you're heterosexual and you're always in um, very volatile, dramatic, um, lots of jealousy and arguments and fights. And that's the kind of relationship you have over and over and over again. That in and of itself is neurotic. Maybe your sexual orientation is not neurotic, but the way you express it is. So that could change dramatically during the course of, of a person's therapy. Right. Um, yeah, I think that's true. But, but what about sort of sexual preferences and proclivities? I mean, have you experienced those shifting for people as a result of doing deep feeling therapy? Well, I think many, many things shift during the course of therapy. And what people are, you know, often people are trying to work out, you know, let's say the man who's only attracted to women that are not interested in him, you know, that then you have to work very, very hard to get that person to see you and appreciate you and give them gifts and do dramatic things. Well, you know, if we can, you know, we work and we work and we discover what was the relationship with perhaps their mother or an older sister, they had no interest in him. And he worked, maybe that person worked very, very hard to attract a little bit of that person's warmth and love. So they're playing that out over and over and over again. Over the course of therapy, the shift would probably be subtle over time, but Perhaps eventually they would find someone who was equally interested in them, who, you know, the interest was mutual as opposed to only being strongly attracted to people that didn't find them attractive. Right. right. So, you know, I mean, that's just a for instance. But yes, people's people, the dynamic of how a person operates in, a, in an intimate relationship can, un can undergo very great shifts and very great growth and development. You know, sometimes people are attracted to someone that they think is going to take care of them. Well, perhaps in the course of therapy, they discover that they weren't well taken care of as a child. And when they work their way through those feelings, maybe they're not so interested in a person to take care of them. Maybe they are able to consider having an, e an equal partnership with someone. So, Yeah. Many, many things change in the course of therapy, as I'm sure you're aware. I mean, I won't say they change, but they grow and they develop as you grow and you develop. Yeah, I think so. Um, I, I mean, I think that that's also true. But I, I, I would, I guess the, the point that I think is worth making is, in a sense, this is a radical form of therapy, right? Because one, you know, goes to the darkest imaginable places in, one his, in one's history, you know, I have in my history. Uh, you sort of stare down, in my case, death, you know, because of my, you know, near death experience during birth. Um, and this radical uh, approach, in a sense, you know, in that sense, can, at least in my experience, and I, and I believe for others, 
caused this sort of radical, you know, quite significant, um, profound shifts in who we are. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that includes, you know, sexuality, it includes, you know, uh, personality, it includes, you know, beliefs, you know, you know, fundamental, I've I've seen big shifts in, you know, some of my, you know, beliefs about um, interests, you know, so I think that there's this, um, what what am I trying to say? I'm trying to say is, you know, where that people have experienced major performance trauma in their lives, Mm -hmm. it can have had a major shift in who they are. And then doing this major work can can lead to this, you know, profound change in who people are. That, and that is basically the hope that it's not just a kind of uh, surface cosmetic growth and develop cosmetic growth and development, but that it goes to the very core of one's being. And we often have no idea exactly how that's going to manifest, but to be open to whatever it is. And I think you and I have carried on for quite a long time now. Yes. Okay. You were saying to kind of, you know, you wanted to end on a particular point. Yeah, no, I, I think so. I think, um, yeah, I just wanted for, for people who were particularly interested in that point, like the difference between primal and deep feeling therapy, I wanted to make sure we right. covered that. Um, and in my guess is, you know, I, I, you know, I haven't, you know, Dr. Janoff died not too long ago, so, but so I don't know how he um, might have, uh, what will I say, done any development on his own. But at the time that he and I, you know, had the parting of the ways, that was very much a, a, a very distinct difference between the two of us. So, yeah. And I'd say, you know, in, in defense of, you know, the, I, I, I've now been with uh, the, the primal center and, you know, and I think it has, you know, from what you've described is different. I've had long-term relationships mm-hmm. with my therapist. Right, exactly. Uh, um, I'm not sure they're as fundamentalist on the, you know, the, the homosexuality mm-hmm. question. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, I'm not a therapist, so it's a bit difficult for me to, mm. you know, to <laughs> fully represent it, you know, from a therapist perspective. But certainly, right. my my intuition is, my sense is that you know, it's changed quite a lot since the. Yeah, the primal therapy that you, no, you experienced, no, yeah. Yeah, hopefully the therapies develop as well as the people that are doing them. You know, right. as patients <laughs> yes. or as therapists, right? Yeah, no, exactly. Good. All right. Well, thank you so much for sparing the time. Um, again, for people, this is the book, Facing the Wolf, um, yep. Inside the Process of Deep Feeling Therapy. And I would recommend it, you know, if you're a therapist and you're interested in this style of therapy, then absolutely it, it gives you know wonderful insight into how, how this style of therapy works. Uh, if you're thinking about taking this, this route with your own therapy, uh, then this is, you know, a, a great introduction to how it works. Um, so thank you so much. Um, that's the book. Uh, again, thank you for your time. It's been a wonderful conversation. Thank you. Me as well. Bye. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.